At Maximus, we are focused on the future of federal government. We deliver mission-driven innovation at speed and scale, turning insights into impact. We are a top systems integrator and leading provider of transformative technology services, digitally enabled customer experiences, and clinical health services. We help agencies navigate obstacles and anticipate the unexpected by becoming more agile, empowered, effective, and ready for what lies ahead. We are Maximus, moving people forward. Learn more at Maximus.com federal. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. Much like in college when I got to play for Mac Brown, I mean, I was very fortunate to have two incredible coaches, legendary coaches, both Hall of Famers that coached me. And they're all about the players, the, the people, um, treating people like people, treating, uh, uh, remembering people's families. And, um, you know, Pete was so big on that college culture. You know, it was it's supposed to be fun. What we're doing is supposed to be fun. We're playing professional sports. Of course, you got to work hard and you got to, they, they had these bracelets they made, you know, Legion of Boom was what the team was sort of mm-hmm. called. And the bracelets that said LOB, they, they stood for also for love our brothers, you know, and it was just about having your brothers back, having, having your teammates back. And then one of the slogans, my last, one of my, I think Max last year at Texas was for the man on my left and right, which was something that he asked me if I could come up with an idea and, and the team would vote, voted on it. And that's what we went with for our slogan. And it was, uh, you know, very kind of military roots there as well. And uh, I just, like, all of that is very important to building uh, any kind of team that is going to be successful. Is like they've got to trust one another and want to show up for one another and be there for one another. And I mean, that's what makes successful teams in the military and in sports and beyond. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. As we enter 2023 and kick off this new year, I wanted to bring a guest on that I really felt would motivate and inspire my listeners. So I think I have accomplished that with Nate Boyer. And if you don't know Nate's story, you're going to. He's had an incredible career, several in fact. He's been a Green Beret, a professional football player, philanthropist, veterans advocate, actor, He's adding director to that list, so on and so forth. The list just goes on and on. After working with refugees in Sudan, he joined the army in 2005, but that wasn't good enough for Nate. He joined the special forces and deployed multiple times. But after leaving active duty in 2009, Nate joined the National Guard and enrolled at the University of Texas. There, he joined the football team as a walk-on with no prior football experience whatsoever. He ended up as a long snapper and won the Armed Forces Merit Award. He ended up also going pro, signing with the Seattle Seahawks in 2015 as a free agent. Since leaving the NFL, Nate's really been trying to give back and has been very involved in philanthropy. His organization, MVP, or Merging Vets and Players, 
pairs transitioning veterans with pro football players and athletes, many of them also transitioning to life outside of their careers in uniform. And now, I mentioned he's adding director to that list. His movie, MVP, tells the story of a recently retired NFL player and that of a homeless veteran suffering from PTSD, which Nate actually plays. The two of them are trying to find their way apart from a career, a community, and a way of life that really came to define him. And it's really the catalyst for what MVP has become. I'm really excited to get into this conversation, so let's jump right in. Nate, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me today. Of course, brother. Thanks for having me. So like a lot of people, um, I heard your story uh, close to a decade ago now. I can't believe it seems that long um, on ESPN of all places. And up until recently, did I, did I really learn more about, about your background? Um, I picked up, uh, Jason Van Camp's book, Deliberate Discomfort, and, and you have a whole chapter in there talking about that, um, talking about your background, your story. And I mean, first of all, again, really grateful to have you here to kind of speak with us, but, um, in hearing about your, your time and kind of you picked up and, and felt compelled to fly to Darfur when you saw these things happening. Honestly, my, my first thought actually happened even before that. I mean, what, what growing up, I'm curious to know what kind of kid was Nate Boyer because something in your childhood had, or some things had to have helped you gain the confidence to just pick up and fly yourself overseas without even having that guaranteed path to your destination. So what were some of those things that you feel like gave you that confidence? Uh, honestly, I didn't really have the confidence in that moment. I mean, I guess technically I would have had to, but it was more about grasping at straws, trying to find something, trying to figure out like where, what was my place in the world? Like feeling like I didn't do anything that really made a difference. Um, and wanting to not feel like that, wanting to feel that sense of not only belonging, but of purpose and that, you know, the world would, would in fact not be a better place if I wasn't around, <laughs> you know, like we, we all want to feel that way, I think. And, and at that time in my life, I mean, I was 23 years old and hadn't, you know, didn't go to college, didn't know what my career path was, didn't feel like I was doing anything that was beneficial to the rest of society in any way. So it, it, it was more about just that urge to be a part of something that mattered. And I feel like, you know, I was making a difference in somebody else's life. So, so that's where that came from. It was less, it was less just being confident that I could figure it out. It was more just like, I'm just going to try. I'm just going to put myself out there and go and see what happens. But I'm sick of kind of waiting for something to happen. Was there somebody that kind of helped you understand that that purpose is important? Or is that something that was really inherent? Because I feel like there's not a lot of 23 year olds out there that sometimes think about what their purpose is to greater society per se, right? I think there's a lot of us when we're 23 that are thinking about, okay, you're getting out of college perhaps, and what do I want to do in my career? And, and what's that first job? But in terms of thinking about where your place is in the world, that that generally comes a little bit later, if at all. Was there somebody that really made you feel like purpose is important, right? Contributing to society and, and global society is really important. Um, 
that would be a mix of things. I mean, this was post nine eleven, so mm-hmm. a lot of that was people that people like Pat Tillman, honestly, that kind of dropped this you know incredible opportunity to play professional football in the NFL to go serve his country. Uh, not just him, a lot of other young men and women that kind of left their futures behind and enlisted, you know, to go uh, fight for those that can't fight for themselves. But also my parents, you know, my parents just, they're very hardworking people, very driven, very goal oriented. Um, At the same time, we're able to provide for, you know, me and my brother and sister. Um, But they, you know, they worked extremely hard. So I had those type of people in my life. And then I had those other people like, you know, like a Pat Tillman that, were certainly not in my life. I never got to meet him, but uh, people that I looked up to and uh, sort of, you know, heroes of mine uh, that were doing things like that. They were living that type of life that I wanted to live. And so that, I mean, that inspired me probably more than anything. That makes sense. I think, I mean, uh, a person like Pat Tillman, I think inspired a lot of people, um, even people that went beyond or it didn't even go into the military, but made you realize that um, there's there's more to life than maybe just just in your small little um, area of focus. And I, I alluded to the fact that you didn't have this guaranteed path to your destination. Tell it. Tell us a little bit about that story, because I, I, when I was when I was reading this book, I thought it was incredible that you you just got there, you landed and you ended up talking your way onto a flight and to get over to Darfur. So tell us that story and how did that really evolve? Yeah, you know, I, I was, I was, uh, I was in the States. I, it, this was 2004. So it's through, it's almost three years after 9-11 where I'm kind of in this place. And I'd thought about joining the military, but didn't do it. I, I didn't know what I would do in the military, if I would fit in the military. Um, but I certainly wanted to find a way to be of service. Uh, I had, you know, over the last two or three years, I'd been saving my money and I would travel when I had an opportunity, I would go to, you know, to Central America or to Europe or something like that and kind of explore a bit. Um, but nothing too crazy and nothing that, uh, had an element of, service attached to it um and so i read this time magazine article about the tragedy in sudan and what was going on in the darfur this genocide that had killed three hundred thousand people already and men and women uh, mostly women and children i should say left as refugees and you know overflowing these camps uh along the the sudan chad border um just outside the Darfur region. And so I was like reading about how they're understaffed at these camps. They need help. So I was like, well, that's me. I, 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 these images just really spoke to me in this article, like nothing had before. And I just thought this is, this is my opportunity. This is my calling. This is a sign. And I called every NGO that I'd read about in the magazine, doctors without borders, child fund, Catholic relief services, and all of them said, we appreciate your desire to help, but it's not that simple. There's a lot of red tape. You don't have a college degree. You don't have any special skills. Like I got every answer as to why I couldn't go help. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm, I'll pay my own way. Like 
I don't want anything from you. I just want the opportunity to to be of service and you know put me to work. There's got to be something. I mean, I'm a young man with good health. Like, there's got to be something you can do. You can um, have me do like manual labor. I don't care. Uh, and you know, they all just said, well, it's just, it's not that simple. It's, it's complicated. And I was like, okay, well, it can't be that complicated. I'm just going to show up and figure it out. Once I'm there, you have to let me help. <laughs> so I did, I just went to the AAA in Burbank <laughs> and bought a plane ticket for Chad, the capital of Chad, J- Jemena, which is a good 20 hour drive from the border through all the, you know, the dirt roads and the way you got to navigate there, uh, or, you know, a couple hour flight as well. And, but I was like, you know what, I'll just get there. And I'll, once I'm there, I'll figure it out. I'll just, I'll just figure it out. Um, so I guess there was a sense of confidence, like you alluded to earlier. Maybe it was just naivety and I just didn't care. Uh, I just need, I knew I needed to follow through on this. Something inside me was telling me, do not let this go. Just show up and it'll happen, whatever that is. And so it was, you know, a lot of it to be completely transparent. It was, it was for me too. It was something I needed. Um, to do. And, and it, it, it ended up working out. I was very fortunate, you know, um, flying over there, getting there, talking to people in the airport, you know, eventually meeting uh, somebody who let me on a UN flight that was headed to the Darfur across country, getting on that flight, um, landing there, not having a contact, talking my way into a volunteer opportunity. Um, and eventually doing that, you know, working out at the camps for a couple of months and just gaining not only perspective and fulfillment from the time I was, was working there, but also just an understanding of how similar we really are at the end of the day, um, how generous people can be, the capacity for generosity. And that was not from aid workers. That was from the people in the Darfur, the Chadians, the Sudanese people that had absolutely nothing but would want nothing more than for you to be their guest and, you know, be a part of their community and expect nothing in return. No, no, nothing transactional about that. Like that just made me feel more at home uh, in some ways than I'd ever been, you know, beyond my family. Of course. Uh, It just was like, wow, this is, these people are so worth fighting for. And that's uh, what inspired me to join the military. My, my last week there in country, I got malaria. And this family, once again, that had nothing, put me up in their compound, um, this mud hut, and nursed me back to health and put a radio next to my bed. The only radio they had, they gave to me so I could listen to something while I was recovering. And I listened to the second battle of Fallujah, like play by play on this radio. And it just was like, that's it. I'm joining the military when I get home. And I came home and and found out about the special forces, uh, what they did, uh, the Green Berets, and um, part of the the humanitarian piece of that mission. uh, And the the motto, De Oppresso Libera, which means to free the oppressed. All those things really spoke to me. Once again, it just felt like a sign. And then there was this 18 X-ray contract where you could come in off the street. And after basic training in airborne school, if you qualified, you'd be able to go straight into special forces selection and start your training to earn that green beret. So it all just was like lining up in this kind of perfect storm of this kid who just a few months ago was completely lost and clueless and, you know, 23 years old feeling like, Oh no, like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I'm get, I'm becoming, I am an adult now and I'm becoming like someone who needs to be responsible um, for my future and my life. And uh, what am I doing? Like, I'm just, you know, running through sand and, uh, and it all changed just very quickly by making that decision to just go. I had just recently, right, right before I had, I had picked up uh, Jason's book and kind of was reminded of your story to a deeper degree. I had just finished uh, Tim Kennedy's Scars and Stripes. And I think one of the reasons why that whole piece, that's the whole idea around confidence of, of talking yourself in or just wanting to give back in those situations, it reminded me so much of his story, maybe in the inverse and kind of how he went back to Afghanistan to help and um, it just, it struck me that I think there are, that there's, there's tangibles and intangibles of people. And I think there's some of those things that you can't measure. And I think that's a really good example of something that it's hard to really measure, but you, you even mentioned that you have this calling, right? This calling to service and the best way I can describe it, it's almost like a, by any means necessary type of type of thing. You want to help, you want to make, you want to make the world a better place and you are just going to go out there and do it by any means necessary. And I think again, that's kind of what struck me. And you mentioned getting into the ATN x-ray program and, and finding out about special forces. This might be where uh, Tim's story is a little bit different, where he's a professional MMA fighter. And when you were uh, telling the story, you talked about the the fitness shape that you were in when you went to boot camp and and thinking about what you've accomplished in your career it's really hard to imagine that you showed up and you were essentially last in all the, the fitness areas. Tell, tell the listeners a little about this because this kind of blew my mind, but then also what you did to take it upon yourself to make sure that wasn't going to be the case and that you were going to be the best in there. Yeah. I mean, I was not in great physical shape when I, when I got to basic training. I mean, I, I, uh, <laughs> pretty funny like I, I I wasn't like in horrible shape I mean I was 23 and mm-hmm. you know I wasn't like overweight or anything but you know I rolled my own cigarettes and I uh, rarely exercised and maybe played basketball once a week pick up games twice if you're lucky um, you know I walked a lot of places I mean I was a pretty nomadic type of guy uh, but I was not in that kind of, I had, I hadn't gone on a distance run in forever, you know, push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, like just wasn't something I had done since high school, you know, when I was playing sports. And, uh, and so it was kind of funny, like just to get to basic, be, you know, the first PT test I think I did in two minutes, I did 29 push-ups and 53 sit-ups. And then on the two mil, two mile run, I ran like close to 15 minute, two mile, which isn't very good if you're trying to be a green beret. And, uh, yeah, so I had a long way to go <laughs> to say the least. And, but I just, you know, every day I was like, I'm just going to do a little bit extra. I'm just going to do a little bit extra. So, you know, on the way, when you're in basic training, especially in infantry school, every day on the way to the chow hall, you know, you've got to do, or at least it's requested of you to do some extra PT, you know, I think the first few weeks you kind of, everybody has to kind of do something like that, you know, do some push-ups before you go in or whatever. But then it was like, they would suggest what you do, you know, and it was kind of on you a little bit. So I remember 
before and after every meal, it was like, I'm going to do 50 push-ups and 10 pull-ups and 100 sit-ups or whatever it is. And then that number would just increase uh, with time. And then on Sundays when we had any, uh, you know, people had the opportunity to, to go to, to, to religious services or uh, clean up their bunks or like when you had a little bit of downtime on Sunday, later on in basic, I would put my body armor on and I would go down to the track, um, kind of sneak out there and just do like, like a mile of lunges or something insane. Like I remember that specifically being the most insane just to see if I could do it. Like, you know, and when I say a mile of lunges, it's like with every single step I'm lunging. It wasn't like lunge, walk a few steps, take another lunge. Like it was a, a literal mile of lunges, you know, with, with my body armor on with my Kevlar and it was hard and it sucked. I, I remember being like, you know, a quarter of the way through the first quarter mile. And I, my, I'm already, my legs are already like jello, you know, and I just kept going and kept doing it and limped off the track, went back into the barracks and was just like, dude, you just did that. Like, that's crazy. If you can do that. Your body is capable of doing a lot of things, you know? Um, and it just started to give me that confidence, um, mentally because so much of it is mental. You know, if you can just get past the mental blocks of pain mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, feeling like or you're out of breath or, you know, you're just tired because you haven't slept, you're hungry, all these things. The body is pretty amazing, like what it's capable of and what it can can persevere through and how it can survive and adapt and get stronger. And, and the mind has so much control over that, you know. And so it's just like started there. By the end of basic training, I remember we did another PT test. And I did like, I did like something, I did like 145 push-ups, and like 103 sit-ups and ran two miles in 11 minutes flat. Like it was completely different um, human over those 14 <laughs> weeks. I mean, I totally transformed in three and a half months. Um, so that's a good lesson for anybody that just wants to get in shape. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's a lot not of that there. hard. Yeah, it's not that hard. I mean, it's hard. Okay, that's not fair to say it's not that hard. But, but you just have possible. to commit to it. It's possible. You just have to commit to it and show up every day. Just show up. Keep showing up, you know, and have people around you to hold you accountable or something that you're – a goal that you're pursuing. And you'll start seeing some incredible results. It, it might take a bit. But I think the biggest thing there is people people quit in two or three weeks because they don't see results, you know. And it's like – and it's, and you're, you're sore, you know. And it's just like, well, yeah, it doesn't, your body needs time to understand what it's trying to do now. You know, you need to trick your body <laughs> for a while. Maybe it's been thinking, well, this person is pretty sedentary and eats a lot. So for whatever reason, I need to store food and, you know, I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm in some sort of hibernation mode. And then when you start doing this other stuff, it takes time. But after a while, your body's like, oh, okay, I see we're doing something different now. We're we're uh, we're very active now, and you know, and then it starts starts to make adjustments as well. It's it's very interesting how that all works and how they're all connected. But I mean, it's important to understand that if you want to make a change in your life and anything, not just physically, you've got to commit to it. You got to keep showing up and keep doing it, and eventually the changes will come. You just have to believe that. Um, but but you've got to you got to be all in. It, it makes me think of the term I used before, by any means necessary. And, and you touched on kind of the power that 
your brain has the mental aspect of it, but even beyond just the physical fitness test, the the special forces boot camp trying to be cream beret is really difficult. Was there was there anything else that you really learned about yourself during that period of time that has stayed with you? Just that you know, I, I can be I can be self motivated to do anything uh, if it's something that matters to me, of course, and it's something that uh, I feel a sense of. A purpose and you know the challenge excites me uh that i can i can i i don't need people to motivate me or push me i need people to help me there's no doubt about that everything in life you need help you know but i i can be self-motivated uh and i can i can show up every day and i can uh, regardless of what's going on in my life i i can make time for those things and figure that out and it's like you know, it, it helps you understand, I guess, where your priorities actually lie because you're going to show up for the things that, that really do matter to you. And if there's things that don't as much, you know, even though you say they matter to you, you're not going to show up to them <laughs> or you're not going to put them at the top of the list. And that's okay. You just need to understand that, like, that's that's how that works. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was the biggest thing that, like, I can do this. I can do, honestly, I can do anything. I really believe that. And I don't think that's just a Nate thing. That's, that's a human thing. We all can. Um, and, and, I, and I just truly believe that. And I still do. I'm a firm believer though, that I think that that comes with, with challenge, right? I don't think, I mean, when you're a kid, obviously you, you have that feeling of I can do anything, but as you get older and things become more difficult, you start to put limitations on yourself, I think. And it's not yeah. until you really push yourself and find out what you're truly capable of. And I don't just mean doing hard things, but I mean getting to the point where you have exhausted every ounce of effort and talent um, that you have to give to see that you can do whatever you really want to do. You just have to be willing to go to the ends of the earth, I think, to do it. And I, I like I said, I don't think that's I don't think that's innate to us. I think that's something that you earn, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you got to give yourself uh, reasons to believe. When I, <laughs> yeah, I think that starts, starts with little things. Well, and, and the personification, I think, of that kind of belief is exactly what you did afterwards. So um, I, for those listening, I don't know how many of you know Nate's story, but after getting as you were going to get out of the special forces and the way you kind of told this story or Jason helped tell this story during his book was that you sat down with him and told him, Hey, I'm, I'm going to go play college football that you're getting out of the army and you're going to go play college football. And you had never played football in your life. Right. And Jason, somebody who played football at, at army and, and you mentioned it to him. And not only were you going to go play college football, it was either going to be the University of Southern California or University of Texas, because those were the top two teams in the country at the time. What, how did that conversation go with Jason? And what did the period of time look like between that and, and you walking on, which ultimately was University of Texas, you walking on and making the team? What did, what did that look like? Yeah, I mean, it just... It didn't look like anything. It just looked like me doing it <laughs> or trying to do it. Honestly, like I, I, uh, there's nothing that that's the thing. Like, I think people put so much emphasis on like how crazy this is. And 
it, it was as simple as just showing up and going to the tryout and, you know, I was in good shape from the military and then just going as hard as I could, you know, I, I prepared for it. Um, I was in Iraq when I started running routes and trying to teach myself how to backpedal and I was not doing good at it, but I was in shape. And then I just showed up with the right attitude and like went as hard as I could in the tryout. Um, and they just want people, they wanted people, especially on the scout team that just were hardworking and were willing to get run over with dignity <laughs> every day <laughs> at practice and get back up and do it again. And, and that's how I made the team. You know, it was just, okay, I'm just going to be that guy for now. And then once I'm on the team, I can reevaluate. And I made the team. And after a year of being on the scout team and, you know, not getting off the scout team and seeing that that was going to be very difficult just from an athleticism standpoint. So I started long snapping just to find a way on the field. You know, it's a thankless job. And uh, I, I, I'd i never long snapped before. I'd never even played football before. Uh, but it was like, okay, okay, like this is something that if I practice and commit to, put the time in necessary, uh, I should know in a couple of months here if – it's something that fits me. Essentially, I just, yeah, just went all in on on that and uh, started started uh, practicing long snap, long snapping like a hundred footballs a day, and eventually got the hang of it, and eventually tried out for the position, and eventually won the backup job, and then the second game of the season, I got an opportunity to start um, that sophomore year, and, and I started for thirty eight straight games after that. So it was a uh, it was really, really, it was a good call. It was a good move for me to, mm -hmm. to try the long snapping deal. But, but yeah, I mean, it was, for me, I just wanted to go compete at the highest level, uh, whatever it was. I didn't want to take an easy way out. And even though I had initially thought that was the way to do it, but you know, one of my good friends, Brad keys, who passed away in 2012, unfortunately, he was the one who sort of encouraged me to go to a big school you know, and not, not a small school. So then once I was like, all right, go to a big school, I'm going to go to the biggest, I'm going to go to the university of Texas. Very cool. And and one of the stories that really resonated with me too, was after, after one of the games, um, I, I think you were still on the scout team at the time, Jason had come to visit you and he, you guys were sitting in the locker room and you were talking about the, why the team was struggling. They had just, uh, they had just been the best team in the country and, and you guys were now having a season, a down season. And one of the statements you made, cause he was at, cause you said it was leadership. They were lacking leadership. And you said that to lead, you had to be on the field. I'm curious to know, do you still feel that way? Do you think that people can have leadership positions in kind of a more tertiary role? Or do you think to really make that impact that has to be made you have to be on the field leading from the front i mean if you're a player yeah kind of mm -hmm. you know i don't think you i guess you don't have to for sure i mean there's other people that are from outsiders but i was on the team so yeah. if i'm on the team but i'm one of the people that's not in the fight for me to like rally everybody and try to get uh, i don't know i don't i, I, can I, I know example. exactly what you mean I, yeah, yeah i, I can know exactly example, what you mean. but i don't think I, I i personally don't feel wouldn't feel comfortable being a vocal leader in that situation. You know what I mean? I can leave by mm -hmm. that example of how training in the weight room and how I'm practicing. Uh, of course, I mean, everybody should be by example. Um, you know, we're all, we're all leaders in that regard. Um, 
if we have that opportunity. But vocally, like I just didn't feel comfortable saying anything if I wasn't playing. And then, and then after your your University of Texas career was kind of coming to an end, which you were still um, you were still part of the National Guard at the time. You still reenlisted and were part of the National Guard. You mentioned you were in Afghanistan when you were learning how to long snap. Um, so still kind of wearing both hats, um, you, you went undrafted and ended up becoming a Seattle Seahawk for the preseason. What was that experience like for you to kind of be in, be in an NFL locker room and be able to run out onto an NFL field, holding the American flag and being able to kind of live that, that type of, that type of dream. What, what was that like? I mean, it was unreal. It was unreal to uh to get that experience i remember warming up in the one game i played warming up uh pre-game and i'm at midfield you know and i like look uh, i snap a ball and then i like look up you know the stands they're they're filling up it's it's in seattle so and as in or i guess late august so the sun was out but it was also raining of course and i like look over and peyton manning is standing 10 feet from me warming up, you know, throwing passes. I'm just like, what am I doing? This is crazy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was wild. And, and I mean, that was his last year uh, as well as mine, <laughs> not on my, not, on, not by choice, but uh, he ended up, you know, winning the Super Bowl and kind of finishing out um, on a ultra positive note there. And that's just, it was very, it was very surreal, very surreal for sure. Just to, to be like, standing out there um and uh, to have that to have that opportunity to 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 lead the team out of the tunnel with the flag play the entire second half um yeah nothing not many things compare to that moment and being there i mean you might have played in one preseason game but you were there kind of in the build up to that under, I mean, one of the one of the better coaches within the National Football League. He's been he's been in Seattle for a long time. Pete Carroll was also at University of Southern California. Ironically, another school that you were thinking about going to. Was there anything you took away from from that experience from him, and just just from watching, just from observing, and kind of being around the team that that you feel like has also made you better in what you're doing today? Yeah, I mean, Pete was just you know he's. He's a great leader uh, of of people generally. Um, uh, he's he kept things much like in college when I got to play for Mac Brown. I mean, I was very fortunate to have two incredible coaches, legendary coaches, both Hall of Famers, um, that coached me, and they're all about the players, the the people, um, treating people like people, treating players like people. I should say. Treating, uh, uh, remembering people's families, and um, you know, Pete was so big on that college culture. It, you know, it was it's supposed to be fun. What we're doing is supposed to be fun. We're playing professional sports. Of course, you got to work hard, and you know, you got to. They, they had these bracelets they made. You know, Legion of Boom was what the team was sort of mm-hmm. called, and the bracelets that said LOB they they stood for also for love our brothers. You know, and it was just about having your brothers back, having having your teammates back. And then one of the slogans my last one of my I think Max last year at Texas was for the man on my left and right, which was something that he asked me if I could come up with an idea and 
and the team would vote voted on it and that's what we went with for our slogan and it was uh you know very kind of military roots there as well and uh i just like all of that is very important to building uh any kind of team that is going to be successful is like they've got to trust one another and want to show up for one another and be there for one another and i mean that's what makes successful teams in the military and in sports and beyond so it was uh it was really cool to to have that that opportunity and yeah i was up there it's up there for the better part of five months um you know through otas and uh training camp in the preseason rookie mini camp all that stuff um and just to kind of make it to each step uh without getting cut <laughs> it was pretty cool eventually that day did come but uh, i was just grateful that i got to i got to play in that one game even though it was a preseason game it was it was awesome i mean i'll never forget it I, I like that you said for for the guy on your left and your right because I think that's a great segue into the work that you're doing now. Um, if you want to tell tell folks about the organization you created, because I, I first of all I, I think it's I think it's fantastic. It's th- it's something that I think the the military community really can latch on to, but also the the athletic community. I mean, I, I can tell you, I, I used to play college soccer. I played professional soccer and I miss that locker room environment, right? I miss being around the guys, the camaraderie, but the support that you can give each other. And I know I have right. a lot of friends that were in the military that also miss that same aspect of it. Um, tell tell folks a little bit about the the organization that that you've helped create and the work that you guys are doing. Yeah, Emerging Vets and Players, MVP for short. I mean, we bring together combat vets and former professional athletes and help them find purpose and identity when they lose the uniform. And we, I co-founded it with Jay Glazer almost exactly seven years ago. Got our anniversary this week, actually. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's incredible. We're in eight chapters now around the country. L.A., Chicago, Las Vegas, Atlanta, New York, Seattle, Dallas, and Phoenix. And on a weekly basis, we meet up in the gym, we train for about 30 to 45 minutes and then we'll huddle up and it's just peer to peer coaching, open forum. You know, we talk through our struggles. Uh, we talk through our wins too. Uh, and it's just building that locker room and that community and that camaraderie that a lot of these guys lose when they lose the uniform, you know, whether it's a Jersey or camouflage, you typically you're pretty young sometimes in your early twenties, even, and you sort of pe- feel like you've peaked and you'll never be great again. Um, and even when you're, you know, someone like Tom Brady, known as the GOAT, like hard to let go of the game. You know, he retired and then yeah. retired. And um, even when he does fully get out, he's going to miss it. It's going to be tough. I've heard Tony Gonzalez. We've all heard him on our mat talk about that. You know, 17 years in the pros, Hall of Fame career, maybe the greatest tight end to ever do it. Um and he felt like he'd never be great again when he was, you know, he was 37, 38 years old, retired, and like just felt like he'd lost a, a huge piece of him and his identity. And uh, and that's a cool thing that people, they can learn more about MVP through the website, through uh, vetsandplayers.org, um, and, you know, and, and following myself and Jay Glazer, who I co-founded MVP with. But also, there's a movie out, you know, that people. I was, go I was going right to say, now. you don't just have to, yeah. you don't have to just go to the website. There's a, there's a whole movie you can go watch, which uh, I saw, and it's, it's. Re- I'll tell you, it's really, really good. Um, I'm a big, I'm a big Mo McCray fan as well. Um, He's great, and I think, and just kind of the way, the the way the movie really 
builds on kind of how that organization was founded. I think it's 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 an incredible movie, especially if you're a sports lover. But even if you're not, um, it's something that I think anybody could could watch and enjoy, um, but also take some value away from, especially when you're thinking about mental health and trying to be the best version of yourself. Um, so so really great job. And you you directed it, not only starred in it, but directed it, correct? Yeah, I did. You know, it's it's uh, uh, first of all, it's it, it's made by largely the veterans community, right? It's made by us. Uh, most of the crew were, were veterans. Every department head, except for the uh, cinematographer, was a veteran. But then every veteran portrayed on screen is played by an actual veteran, and it's not a documentary. It, it's a narrative film. Um, it feels like a doc, I think at times, which is the intent, uh, because it's so authentic with the people and the stories. It is like everything written and I, I co-wrote this thing too. And, and I, I would say I more transcribed it than wrote it because it's literally our stories, these veterans, these athletes put down on paper and then spoken by these real people. Um, Tony Gonzalez, Randy Couture, Jay Glazer, Howie Long and Michael Strahan, all these people play themselves in the movie. Uh, and then there's some other characters that are also played by real professional athletes. And then, like I said, all those vets, uh, are, they're, they're all real veterans playing them, playing, uh, versions of themselves or characters that they relate to. Even Dan Loria, who is the dad on the wonder years, he's a Vietnam vet, you know, and he's in the film. Um, and it's just like, it was this really cool way for us to come together in the middle of the pandemic and make something truly unique and special. You know, we shot it in Los Angeles. Uh, basically, the story is a, about a, a veteran who's living in a homeless shelter in East Hollywood on Sunset Boulevard. And it's a real place that we filmed at on location there. And he meets an NFL player first year out of the league going through the same kind of struggles you know, and this guy's got a house and a car and the wife, the family, he's got it all uh, on paper, but he feels empty, you know, and feels like I, I'm, I don't know who I am. I'm just trying to figure out, you know, civilian life. <laughs> and like, we talk about it in the movie. We talk about it all the time at MVP. We were never, we never compare war to playing sports. That's not what we're doing. We're talking about that locker room that camaraderie, that identity with the uniform, that sense of purpose, mission, all those things that we lose. Uh, and that's a human thing that people can relate to. Humans lose that at some point. All of us do. But in professional sports and in the military, it's typically very, very young. And it's some very, very intense uh, circumstances. Uh, and, you know, you feel these high highs and then very quickly you feel these low lows. And it's, it's, it's tough to move on sometimes. No, like I said, first of all, congratulations again on the movie. Um, I, I I know there's there's a lot of former Navy SEALs and, and special forces and um, guys that have have had long careers in the military and, and have brought a lot of that wisdom, written books, brought a lot of that wisdom into um, into if you want to call it civilian or private sector. But you went out and made a movie, and that's incredibly impressive. Um, it was. It was not only an entertaining movie, but I think it really told a good story. And you used the word authentic. I think that's a really good way to describe it. So again, congratulations on the movie. Um, and thank you again, Nate, for the time today. Um, this, has been, this has been excellent. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate it, Brian. Thanks for having me.
This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to govexec.com backslash podcast wherever you access yours. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittister AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.